Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, this morning, we say another goodbye to this series on the seven deadly sins. And I don't know how this series has been for you. I have a hint because this is the one series I've preached in 25 years that I've gotten the most active feedback from you as a congregation. I have never been asked so often for the notes for my messages. <laughs> That's weird to me. I mean, of all the series I've preached, you guys have really asked for the notes and have leaned into this series. I don't know what that says. I'm, I'm grateful. <laughs> I'm glad that we hit pay dirt with the sins. Uh, and I, I hope that that is a continued blessing for you. I can tell you that this series has been, for me, one of the most shaping on a personal level. And God has used it to humble me and to soften my own heart and knock me down a few notches in my own eyes. Because I went into each one thinking, surely not this one. And I walked away seeing that God has a lot of growing to do in me. Now, for each of these seven deadly sins, there have been a pocket of people in this church for whom they could say, oh, this is mine. Or they could say, oh, this one's for you. Don't fall asleep. Um, Because each one is kind of a, a very particular weakness. But if the statistics hold true in my experience in thousands of conversations over the years holds true, this is one that almost everyone in this room will need to wake up and pay attention to. This is a big issue if you're an American today. Of course, we're talking about lust. And as a society, we Americans have a really conflicted relationship with sex. I know that this is one of the weeks where the youth group is in the room with us. Is that, is that right? You guys are, oh, you're not? Oh, just some of the youth are in here. Okay. And uh, I'm sorry, you're not even youth anymore. You're not allowed back in the room. Okay, that's good. Well, I was going to say, normally we'd be like, oh, I should be careful what I say. But in this one, I think you guys are actually more sensitive and delicate than the youth group would be. I think the youth group would find this topic sort of passe, and you guys might be a little scandalized by some of the things I'm going to say to you. So buckle your seatbelts and wake up, because we're going to talk about sex today. I know we speak of lusting after lots of things, lusting after a car or a new pair of shoes or a handbag. But when we talk about lust, really today the thing we have to keep in focus is not the other yearnings of our heart, but sex. And we have a really complicated relation with sex. On the one hand, we all recognize that sex is a very serious thing. Even irreligious people understand that when they have sex, that's a significant turning point in that relationship. That you could just be hanging out, but when sex occurs, everyone knows a boundary has been crossed here between two human beings. We also know that sex is very serious because every other sin committed against us, it's easier to rebound from. I've seen people recover from serious beatings, physical violence. 
I've seen people recover and move on from being swindled out of their life savings. Those are significant hurts. They leave a mark. But I watch people rise out of those ashes and move on very fruitfully. But when there's sexual sin committed against people, I see those scars run very deep and last for a lifetime. People process that pain well into their old age, and some never really recover from it. Because sex, unlike every other thing we do, touches us in the deepest possible place. That's just the truth of it. So there's a universal recognition that sex is not a a trivial thing. It's a significant, important thing. But at the same time, we have this other schizophrenic side of us that wants to make sex something very trivial. Just another human activity. I didn't watch this movie, but I watched a clip because it was referenced in a blog that I was that came up in my research. And after watching the clip, I don't want to watch the movie, so I have no idea how it ends. But it's a 2011 film, Friends with Benefits. And Mila Kunis and Justin Timberlake play two friends who are platonic friends, no real interest in each other romantically, but they're sitting around watching TV one day, and they lament over all the drama and complexity that comes with relationships. And they just reason together, wouldn't it be great if it was possible to have just sex? No relationship, no expectations, no obligations, no involvement, just a physical activity. And Justin Timberlake says, yeah, like two people playing tennis. I mean, that's so messed up if you really stop and think about it. And yet that is so emblematic of the attitude that reigns in our culture about sex is that everybody is bent on reducing this powerful thing into a basic, normal, everyday human activity, just like anything else. In the same way two people will play tennis and expect nothing more from each other. If I play tennis with you, I don't expect to spend the rest of my life with you. I go home. And they say, wouldn't it be great if we could just have sex on those terms? And then he looks at her and goes, hey, let's play tennis. And in the most confused and conflicted moment in that clip, she pulls out her iPad and pulls up the Bible app so that he could put his hand on it to swear that all he wants from her is her body and nothing more. I, I, can't, I, I can't even begin to dive into the psychological and theological ridiculousness of that situation, but I think that perfectly spells out the weirdness with which we relate to sex as Americans. That on one hand, we know it's sacred and important, but on the other hand, we want to make it nothing, just another biological function. And we waver between those two extremes when it comes to sex. And lust steps into that, and what God is telling us by identifying lust as one of the most foundational distortions of the human heart is that that speaks to the way we try to rationalize those things which are sacred and heavy by trying to make them into something very small. Lust is to sex what gluttony is to food. It is desire without appropriate boundaries or limits. And I want to explore with you the nature and cost of lust together. Normally, I would just talk about the nature and then talk about the cost, but I think in this case, the nature and the cost kind of come hand in hand, so I want to combine those things together and see if we can move through this. On the one hand, lust makes too much of sex. 
It obsesses over it. It wants to have a life filled with sex. And that's why when it comes to sex, many people speak in the language of addiction and helplessness, bondage and enslavement. It feels to them very much like this is a force in them, but also outside of them. That it is foreign to themselves, so powerful, they feel like they cannot stand up against the strength of the impulse in them. What's interesting to me is that the Latin root word for lust is luxuria. Does that sound familiar? It's the same word from from which we get the English luxury. Long before luxury meant sumptuous comfort and high-class delights, luxury meant lechery and lust. It even had connotations of adultery. And I, I think the two are actually related. You know, when I see... Um, websites or television shows featuring five-star lifestyles. Remember, even way back in the day when I was a youngster, we would watch Robin Leach's Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. How many of you guys are old enough to remember Robin Leach and Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous? And I used to remember, or, or MTV Cribs, you remember that? And you're like, whoa! And these guys are like, this is my fridge, and then this is my, my, my car, my garage with all the cars. And you're like, whoa! And at some point, though, you reach a level of luxury where you just go, that's just stupid. You know, there's, there's like the, I'm envious, and then you get to a point of, where you just go, that's just stupid. It's excessive. It's too much. I remember feeling that when I went to this really fancy restaurant, I, I, I've never paid to eat at a place. So somebody took me, in, and in the bathroom was a stack this high of really high-quality, like, like, I think this is like Egyptian cotton-type towels. They didn't use paper towels. You dry your hands on these really nice towels, and every time I grab one to dry my hands, this guy reached in and put another one on the pile. This guy's whole job was a towel replenisher. Because these people were so high-class, paper towels would never touch these hands. And they, had, they could only rub their hands with certain kinds. And, and this whole dude just standing there in a tux, just replacing the towels, I'm like... Now we've reached the point of stupid. It's just moisture on your hands. Is that necessary? But what they're trying to say is you are so worth it that you, you should be living like a king. It is desire for pleasure, for a certain feeling that exceeds normal limits where a person would go, this is a little much. And everyone has that little alarm inside that goes, hey, this is a little much. And the person whose heart is gripped by luxury or lust says to that voice all the time, shut up, you don't know what you're talking about. This is totally fine. Lust is built on the same chassis that drives a heart that is addicted to luxury. I must have everything my heart desires. I will deny myself nothing. If you say to me, that's a little, that's a little much, I will say to you, you don't understand, and I will silence your voice. That excessiveness, that out-of-control appetite, that disregard for normal boundaries or appetites or limits really marks the way that we relate to sex in America. Our excessive consumption of pornography probably illustrates this nature of lust more than just about anything. I want to give you some statistics, and I'm going to withhold the name of the website because sometimes even something that innocent is just giving you the source begins a whole rabbit trail of independent research that ends you in a very bad place. Just know that these are verified stats. If you have to know, I'll tell you privately. 
But you don't need to. This is just the stats from one leading pornographic website that carefully tracks all of their data. And you should understand that these sites are all digital. These are not estimates or guesstimates. This is based on hard data in bits and bytes that they have. 33.5 billion visits in 2018 alone, each visit lasting an average of 10 minutes, 13 seconds. This is not casual, oops, I've stumbled upon it because I I misclicked the link in my email. This is, oh, 10 minutes, that's not an accident, that's a visit. I've had people stop at my house and stay less than 10 minutes. Do you know that's 63,992 new visitors rolling in every minute? These are virtual places, but I want you to picture if this was a physical store, a pornography store, or better yet, you can't fit that many people in a store. Imagine this is a pornography theme park, amusement park. Do you realize that Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom in Orlando, the big one, it sees about 54,000 visitors a day. A day. And you know how crowded Magic Kingdom can get. Picture that many people plus another 8,000 of their friends walking into this place Every minute. The appetite of America for pornography boggles the imagination. And these kind of numbers cannot be sustained if everyone in church goes, well, that's everybody out there. Let's just not lie to ourselves. That's us too. In the church, across the board, this has become such a problem. It's not just the religious ninnies going, this is a big problem. There are people in the secular world sounding the alarm hard, saying this is really destroying our country. The costs are incalculable. And, and the, the people who are the naysayers say, no, don't, that, that's ridiculous. You're blowing it out of proportion. I, you know, one of the big problems is how to do age verification because all you, it's so, such a stupid system, right? Like if you try to wander behind the saloon doors of the local video store, the store owner will be like, kid, get out of there. You're not 21. But all you have to do to get into a website is they ask you, are you over 21? You go, yes, that's it. And they realize in the UK, this is one of the biggest problems. And one of the researchers who's working hard at how do we create age verification on the internet said, the amount of free access to pornography that children have today is perhaps the greatest unregulated social experiment in human history. And we're going to see in a few years the devastating impact to society that that level of exposure has. This is not religious people. These are lawmakers and policymakers very concerned about what's happening. Incidentally, if you're a woman checking out because this is a gross guy thing, 29% of all visitors to this one website are female, and that holds across the Internet now. A full third of visitors are female and especially younger females, ages 15 to 19, seem to be the greatest age range. It's youth group. What's depressing for me is that these numbers would be shocking if they were for the whole internet, but that's just one leading pornography website. That boggles the mind. It's this kind of appetite run amok. No limits, no sense of appropriateness, No, hey, that's a bit much. It's just all on, an onslaught of consumption of this kind of stuff. 
And the paradox of excessively consuming something is that when you get too much of something, the ability to actually enjoy it goes down, not up. And because the person who is gluttonously feeding too much on something feels less and less, they need more and more to feel the same fullness or satisfaction. And before, there used to be barriers to access. It wasn't so easy to get your hands on this kind of material, but the internet has changed everything. Some of the most conservative estimates I found, some of the more outrageous ones by religious alarmists will say up to 37 or 40% of the internet is porn. I I kind of feel like maybe that's not so far from the truth, but the most conservative estimates put it at 10% of the internet. That's 10% of all the content on the World Wide Web is porn. In fact, Huffington Post recently reported that pornographic websites get more visitors every month than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter all combined. Now, that's the last statistic I'm going to throw at you. I'm, you would not believe the reams of statistics I gathered that, that didn't make it off the cutting room floor, but it is really depressing and shocking to me how out of control the American appetite for empty sex has become. I don't think we need much more evidence to make the case that in America... One of the great errors we're making is we are making way too much of sex. It is becoming a huge obsession, in many cases, a surrogate for real relationship. On the other hand, the other error that lust makes is it makes too little of sex. See, God designed sex to be pleasing, but he also designed it to be a mutual activity. The heart of sex as God designed it is not a physical sensation. That is the fringe benefit. That's the flavor God added to the steak so that we would enjoy it as well as get nutrition from it. But the central purpose of sex was that two people would experience a full mutuality of giving. Sex is not about getting pleasure. It is about giving it and being linked and bound to someone else. That is why marriage is the safest context for it, because you know where you stand with that other person. This is not two greedy people ravenously trying to feed on the other. You can picture, the image I have, you know how like you watch those National Geographic or BBC Life um, type of documentaries, nature footage, and you see always the lion eating a, a buffalo, or a zebra. And the zebra doesn't have sharp teeth or claws. It's like, just get off. And it's, the thing's just eating it while it's alive. And it seems so unfair. Sex without love is more like two lions trying really hard to eat each other before they die. Two greedy, selfish people saying, I will take as much of a bite out of you as I can before you eat me. Lust makes too little of sex by trying to strip it of its central power, which is that sex is meant to bind a husband and wife together in the deepest kind of connection through the mutuality of giving, of generosity, of saying, I want to do something for you, not I want you to do something for me. That's radically different than the one-night stand. 
that says, I don't know if I'll ever see you again, but I want to extract from you as much satisfaction as I'm able before I move on to the next person. And that same heart drives our radically greedy consumption of pornography. When you take the pleasure and leave out the relationship, it's not like playing tennis. It's much hollower than that. It is playing games with something that has the power to take two human beings who are strangers and turn them into a family. You know, when I was a kid, I thought my my mom and dad were actually related because they were always together in my life. Like, mom and dad are like a unit. That's what family is. It's sacred. That's a bond that cannot be erased. And then it blew my mind when I realized as a teenager, oh my God, mom and dad were once strangers. They didn't even grow up in the same town. They didn't know each other. And then one day in, in college, they met each other. And then they went to a hospital to work together. And then they just made a family. And because of sex and love and years of mutuality and engagement and sacrifice, they became one person. So one that in my mind, I could not separate them. That is the devastation of divorce is that it takes that two who are one and separates, and it's hard to recover from that. You can, but it's hard because that's the power that this thing holds, is through this and many other things, two total strangers become one person. That is a power you don't play games with. That is not something that we should try to defang and strip of its real power. God designed it to have the power to to knit two people together. See, lust is inherently self-centered because it's primarily obsessed with its own pleasure. It has very little regard for anyone else's enjoyment. I think that's how we can maintain, even if you're a person of conscience, that's one way you maintain porn consumption because you realize that's not victimless. The entire porn industry is built on broken lives. But when you're so greedy for your own pleasure, you don't care so much about those broken lives upon which you're feasting. Lust is inherently one of the most self-centered sins we can commit. It reduces a person to something like an object. Porn makes everything worse because it puts control directly at our fingertips. It gives us access on our terms on our time. It makes it possible for us to experience sexual release without needing another person involved at all. Even if you're married and have a legitimate sex partner, pornography can step in and say, when you don't want to or can't work at that relationship to restore to a place of health where intimacy is possible, take matters literally into your own hands. Do for yourself what your partner won't do for you because it's much easier, more convenient than working at the relationship to get to a place of intimacy. In this way, it's possible even for a husband and wife to commit the sin of lust against each other because you can reduce your spouse simply to a tool for sexual satisfaction and forget that the reason God put that person in your life was to draw out of you the deepest levels of selfless love and generosity. 
you know, to use this as a short-term solution has a long-term cost. It erodes our ability to really invest in loving relationships. In fact, one German study I read made this crazy assertion that when they studied young men in Germany who had a very excessive consumption of pornography, they found that they got married much, much later in life than the men who did not. And their theory, though this is not causality, it's correlation, but their theory is that because they put, you put such a convenient source of sexual release that doesn't require any other person into the hands of these people, it delays their need to pursue a real human relationship that leads to sex. It reduces sex to pleasure and it reduces people to a mere prop. Let me give you another purpose of sex that we shouldn't belittle. Now, we're not, we're not like really old-fashioned here, but the old-fashioned church used to teach that the only purpose of sex was to make babies. If you enjoy it, you're sinning. I think that's nonsense. I don't know what kind of frigid people came up with that rule. But here it is. That's the truth, though, is sex is the primary way by which God creates new human beings. I want you to think about that for a minute. That though sex can be trivialized to something as simple as two people playing tennis, it is also the human activity by which God, through the agency of a man and a woman, create a human being who will then, for the rest of eternity, exist in front of God. I think one of the reasons that we're so moved when a baby is born is, as Christians, we realize when I hold that baby in the hospital room, and I've visited so many of you as your babies enter the world for the first time, and I held that kid in my arms and looked, one of the staggering realizations is that kid is forever now. They will exist to the end of time, somewhere, somehow, but they will never cease to be again. That is the, one of the greatest powers God has entrusted to human beings. The power to create new eternal souls is one of the greatest powers he has called us to steward. And that comes through sex. And when we trivialize sex, well, let me give you an illustration of how that works. Um, I don't know what I just did here. Sorry. Can you just advance to the next slide there? I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of going to the gun range with Officer Don Boardman. But when you go, I know it's a scary thing for a lot of us, and some of us have a a moral conviction regarding firearms. I get that, and I, I hope I won't offend anyone. But I'll tell you that I have a great time when I go to the gun range. I love the physical challenge of trying to line up the sight and hit that paper target. Someone pointed out to me, it'd be nice if the target weren't shaped like people. Um... And I agree. I, I'm a little disturbed that all the targets are shaped like human beings. But when you go to the gun range, there's a lot of laughter, a lot of, ooh, I can't believe, good shot, all of that, until you suddenly turn around. This happens all the time. Oh, my gosh, did you see that shot? And that's when the mood will all change, and Officer Borden will go, hey, put that down. And he calls it flashing when you point the barrel accidentally. And even if your finger's not on the trigger, the rule he will firmly remind you, if you ever do that, is don't you ever point a gun at something you don't intend to kill. Don't you ever point a gun at something that you would not pull the trigger on. That's the one simple 
monkey rule, you got to remember at the range is don't ever point it. Even if you're going, hey, did you see that shot? Unless you try to kill me, turn that thing around. Why? Because even when we're using it for entertainment, even when it's all fun and games, that gun never ceases to be a lethally powerful device. You can use it for fun, but it never stops having the power over life and death. So your attitude towards something doesn't take away its power. You can try to turn sex into a game of tennis, but you will never succeed because it is the one power by which God creates new human eternal souls. That is not a power to trifle with or to trivialize. It's one of the the most significant powers he's given us. And when you try to turn that into just a pastime, an activity, a way of relieving tension and stress, you're playing with something that has eternal consequences. Amazing power. The cost of lust is that it either makes too much out of something that should have its rightful place, or that it trivializes and reduces something very powerful to something much less than it ought to be. So let me explore, as I've, with the time that I have left, what's the remedy for lust? I wish I had a surefire one. I wish I could give you a magic bullet here that will let you go home and never struggle with this again. But the truth is, we live in a world conspiring to never let its hooks out of us. You will struggle with this really till the day you die, but victory, one step at a time, is possible. I'm going I'm to read you a passage that I think beautifully illustrates or encapsulates God's remedy for lust so well. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8. I don't know what, what I'm doing, guys, but I'm going to need you to advance because every time I push the uh, advance button, it blacks the screen out. I'm doing something. There we go. <clears throat> Here's what God's word says. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Out of this, uh, boy, I, I could go another hour, but I'm going to just give you two things that I think jump out of this passage that, that directly combat against lust in our lives. And the first is a call to honor God. Honor God. Paul says that we're called to be sanctified. That's the word we've got to unpack. Sanctified means to be made holy. Not made holy because you work really hard at it, but be declared holy. Live into what you're declared to be. As an example, when something as commonplace as a, a dish or a pitcher was used in temple worship, 
It was consecrated or sanctified. In other words, though this is an everyday utensil that you might find in your own house or kitchen, when it's brought into the temple for worship, it is now set apart for a very holy purpose. It's not just a pitcher anymore. It is a pitcher that contains water used in the worship of God, and so everyone would revere it. You don't just go and pour yourself a glass of that holy water and slake your thirst. That would be offensive to everyone because this is not normal water anymore. It's set apart specifically for God's special use. And what Paul is saying when he points this out to people is that that is exactly how God sees us. That each one of us who follows him, who's trusted him, who's saved by him, is not just another everyday human being, but we are called to be set apart, set apart from sin and set apart for righteousness. That out of all the people in the world, we are called by God to be set apart for his special use. He has a plan for our lives to do something, and we all instinctively know that if someone is set apart to be used by God, they need to be a little different. I remember when Zoe was maybe like four or five years old, I came home late one evening, just exhausted after a long day, and she was still eating because she dragged her feet a lot eating dinner. So she was still at the, at the table eating the last remains of her food, and I was famished and exhausted. I sit down, and I forgot to pray. I'm confessing right now. I'm a pastor, and I forgot to pray for my food. So I just sat down, thank you, honey, and I just started eating when I noticed two little beady eyes staring me down. I look over, and Zoe, in mid-bite, stopped eating. And she looks at me, she says to me, Dad, are you really a pastor? (laughs) I think she was like four years old, but I stumbled her. Are you really a pastor? Because she could not understand how a pastor would just eat without praying if he was a real pastor. Man, I was convicted by that. I was like, dang, i, I got to up my game. These children are looking at me. But that's the instinct we all have, is if you're supposed to be set apart for God's use, you can't be filthy like, that, like the, the world around you. You've got to be different. Wouldn't you be stumbled if I confessed to you during the sermon that I'm hopelessly addicted to porn and I'm having an extramarital affair? Would you invite me back next Sunday to keep preaching? Chris and Ed would pull me off the stage and would have a long talk in the parking lot and Stan would take the pulpit for the next year. Right? Do you understand what we're getting at? Is you just know instinctively, right? You know instinctively that when someone's set apart for special use, they're supposed to be different. They're supposed to be distinct from those that we're supposed to reach. And in Thessalonica, Paul is saying one of the ways you most importantly have to be distinct is in your attitude towards sex. See, Thessalonica was a Greek city. And Greek culture at that time was a sexual free-for-all. Marriages were arranged and it was commonly assumed that your wife is for making legitimate children for your heirs. But every man, it was assumed, would have many other women who were there to satisfy their pleasure. Because it was assumed that if you're forced to marry someone, you're probably not going to be that into them. So you use your wife to make legitimate babies for an inheritance, but you use the whore at the hotel basically for your pleasure. And I don't say that derogatorily. I mean, that was another job, just like Bellman or Concierge. Every inn had a harlot that hung out there to service the men. And nobody batted an eye. No one said that's shameful. It was assumed that's what men do. That's how you're supposed to be. 
when someone in this Greek city came to Christ, we have to remember that Christianity has its roots in Judaism. And in Judaism, built on the Ten Commandments, there were already in place some very careful restrictions about sex. So the Jews already were used to certain restrictions governing sex, but the Greeks were not. For them, they were like, all of a sudden, what do you mean that's wrong? What do you mean we can't sleep together? What do you mean i got to move out? I don't understand what you're saying. And it wasn't like they were trying to be rebellious. There was a, a complete paradigm shift as they went from being in the, a pagan culture that had no rules about sex to coming into the kingdom of God where he said sex, which you once trivialized, is more sacred than you can imagine. God restricts sex not because it's bad, but because it's so good and so powerful. He says, never point that thing someplace you don't intend to shoot. Don't play games with something that is powerful enough to turn two strangers into a family or create an eternal human soul. Don't play games. Do you realize that sexual immorality that's listed there in verse 3, that Greek word is porneia? Does that sound familiar to you? He says, avoid porneia. Because that is one of the primary ways that you are going to show yourself as distinct from the world around you. If there is any way for us to strategically position ourselves as somewhat different, not in an obnoxious, holier-than-thou way, not in a judgmental way, but if there's any place where we can show ourselves to be radically distinct from the world around us today, it's the same today as it was for the Christians in Thessalonica. It is to be distinct in our approach to sex. Paul says, in the honoring of God, in the attempt to become holy and made holy, we're to learn to control our own bodies. That is a word that connotes rigorous, disciplined effort. Do whatever you can to wage war against this trivial, casual attitude toward porneia. I encourage you to use filters Put on screen time. For some of us, the danger zone is the bathroom. It's the one place in your work or in your home where you're legitimate, can be alone, lock the door, and no, one's, no one even wants to bother you. It smells in there. So you, you've got this force field around you of total privacy and unaccountability. And for many, that is where all the danger comes. And if you know that's true of you, make a covenant in your heart never to bring your phone into the bathroom. It's that simple. Now, don't go looking like side-eye at everybody who brings their phone to the bathroom. That's not the point. But if that's your weakness, then that's part of your solution. How serious are you about these things? Notice that in verse 3, he roots this. He roots this carefully, not to ethical arguments or practical benefits. But he says, do this, avoid porneia, not because it's good for society, good for you, the right thing to do, but he says it's because it's God's will. There are many practical benefits to avoiding it. There are many ethical and societal arguments to avoid it, but that's not what Paul appeals to. He says, I appeal only on the basis of this one thing. It is what Almighty God who saved you wants from you. It's what he wants from you so that he can use you the way he intends in the world. It's his will that you should be holy and avoid these things. 
And I think that's important because often when I try to lead with the practical benefits or the ethical arguments, what I get back is all this argument about, uh, well, you know, I'll either deny it or I'll dismiss it. I'll, I'll, I'll show them data from scientific research that shows correlation between excessive porn consumption and violence towards women or increase in adultery or, or child pornography or bestiality, all these other distortions of sexuality. And they'll say, oh, that's just correlation, it's not causality, blah, blah, blah. And we'll get into this whole flame war or argument, and it goes nowhere. I don't think Paul wanted to waste his time debating this issue. What he said is, this is the will of God. And do you see the power of that? Is This command will only be acknowledged by those who care about what God wants. If God's will is not important to you, then this whole sermon will be forgotten before you leave the building. But if God's will matters, then I appeal to God's will and say to you, church, harvest community, it is God's will that you and I be holy and use every effort to avoid pornea. I'm going to run out of time, so let me blaze through this last thing. He says, honor God, but he also says, honor other people. Do you see that he issues a clear warning that we should not, in verse 6, we should not wrong or take advantage of another person. That's another way of saying, don't use people for your pleasure and gain. It's never okay to use another human being because that human being you're using is beloved of God. God cares about them. People like to argue that porn is a victimless crime. Who am I hurting? We have to acknowledge that it's an entire industry built on the ashes of broken lives. How many of you be so proud if your son or daughter entered that industry? Would say proudly at small group, you know what my son did? He just made his 890th film of the year. Come look and see what he did. None of us would feel that. We would feel a tragic loss. Because we understand that somebody who does that has learned to devalue something that was sacred and imbued in them by God. I don't say that in a spirit of judgment towards those people, but in compassion because we don't realize the high linkage between trafficking and injustice and that whole industry. One way to battle lust's powerful drive to use our fellow human being is to build our love capacity to actually exercise those muscles which build our capacity to love another human being with purity and sincerity of heart. When he says control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, that doesn't mean just in the avoidance of sin, but in the active commitment to love the very people you're tempted to take advantage of. It, it boils down to some of the simplest things. Uh, Elder Ed was just telling me how he just helped the family in a small group move. How many of you love it when your friend says, hey, are you busy Saturday? Why? Uh, I, I'm moving. And you're like, oh, why do we have to be friends? You know, when we were 30 or 20, all the guys were like, yeah, I'm there, man. You know, because we wanted to put on the gun show and show people, I, I got this piano by myself. You guys, you less men carry something else. But now in our 40s, we're like, you're too cheap to pay a mover, dude? What's wrong with you? 
Just a simple act of serving someone else strengthens that muscle in us that doesn't want to use people but learns how to serve people. I was so encouraged reading the story of this, this youth group group of boys who formed what they called the first row club at their church. I think our youth group boys are already doing that. I always see them in the, the front row whenever they're in here with us. They chose the front row because they were distracted by the way that young ladies were dressing in church. And when they sat in the back, they had the full view of the room. So all these boys covenanted to sit only in the front row right in front of the preacher. <laughs> now, that's a cute thing. It doesn't solve the problem completely, but it, it signals a commitment to not use other people in any way, to work hard at honoring those people rather than reducing them to an object of lust. The same token, the young ladies in that youth group were encouraged not to dress to provoke desire, but simply to be beautiful. There's a difference. You know what I'm talking about? There's a difference when you want to look cute and smart and when you want to be... "Mm -hmm." Ladies, you know what I'm talking about? Behave yourselves. This is one way we honor one another, is even in the choices we make in the most trivial things, we're mindful that we live in a world shared with others. And I want in every possible way to use my body in a way that leads to honor and holiness. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you'd like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.